good morning, everyone. Uh, before we start, I'm going to open the word of prayer. Father, uh, thank you that we have this time to come together to study your word, to study your truths, and the truths that you have for us today. And we pray that all that will be spoken of today will be only the truths. Um, as we talk about Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39, we pray that you give us all wisdom and understanding in Jesus' So, as I've already said, we're going to be looking at verse, uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 5, looking at verses 33 to 39. Um, before we get there, uh, we have to have a little background. So we're just going to go a few verses back and look at 27 through 33. And it says this, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This Levi is Matthew, pre-conversion, that's his name. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so I point out those verses because in the, we're going to be looking at the verses that follow. And, on, and in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them have the calling of Levi, and then his feast, and then the parables that follow. Which basically points to the idea that it likely was either at the feast or directly after the feast at some point in time where Jesus told about these parables. And so before we dive into verses 33 through 39, let's just read them real quick. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of um, the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and a piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new, for he says, the old is good. So we have a lot to cover, and we're going to take a look at verses 33 through 39. And we're going to see three things. First of all, we're going to see the question posed, then the question answered, and then it illustrated as well. The first thing is the question posed, and we see this in verse 33, right? And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And so you might ask, who is asking the question? Here in Luke, it seems to imply that it is Pharisees, um, but it was in Matthew 9.14, it's a little more clear. And this is what it says, The disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
So in Matthew, he tells us specifically who it is who asks the question. It is the disciples of John. This is John the Baptist. And so in Luke, it's put as a statement, but in Matthew and Mark, it's put as a question with a question mark at the end. Why is it that we do this and you do not? So when we think about this, seeing as a question from John's disciples, I don't necessarily see malicious intent in this question. Often with the Pharisees, you can kind of see them trying to point to something. I think this is more a genuine question. Hey, look, we do this. Why is it that your disciples do not do this? They're genuinely asking a question. And it may concern you that John's disciples would ask this of Jesus, kind of siding with the Pharisees in some ways. And there's two thoughts to this. Um, The first thought would be that they were in mourning. If you do the timeline correctly, it could be that they were mourning for the death of John the Baptist. Jesus started his ministry, then John gets put in captivity and beheaded. And it could be that at this time they were mourning and fasting because of the death of John the Baptist, not necessarily for the same reason as the Pharisees. But that seems more unlikely. More likely, the disciples of John the Baptist... We're going with tradition as well. It is what they had been taught growing up, and so they were going with it as well. And so they're looking at Jesus, who John pointed to, remember, and saying, how is it that your disciples are not fasting while we and the Pharisees are? Something we must point out with this is fasting wasn't required. Well, it was only required once a year on the Day of Atonement. We can see that in Leviticus 16, 29-30. Um, Other times people could fast and they would fast, but it wasn't mandated by Scripture. That's important to point out. And what happened is basically throughout the years, through their traditionalism, people kept adding to how many times they needed to fast, to the point where they ended with fasting twice a week. And we can clearly see that this was something that they boasted about. If you turn to Luke 18, Luke 18, 11 through 12, we see this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Right? He's boasting about this. I fast twice a week. And this is what Jesus warned about in Matthew 6.16, when he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that, they, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In Matthew, it shows their intent, right? Um, they make their face gloomy, so that their fasting may be seen by others. Who were they doing it for, ultimately, right? For themselves, to be seen by other people. Look how much holier I am than you. I am fasting twice a week. So the Pharisees would have been really outraged that Jesus wouldn't have been doing this, ignoring their traditions and not fasting twice a week. But the important thing to note here is he was going against their traditionalism. He was not going against the Old Testament. Um, Because you could walk away with that misunderstanding when reading this. 
Jesus fulfilled the law, remember, right? He fulfilled the very law that was buried underneath all of their traditional ways. So he's not going against the Old Testament. He's going against their traditionalism. Um, and this is what he talks about in Matthew fifteen two through 3, right? The Pharisees and the scribe ask, Why do your disciples break tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They ask him, why is it that your disciples don't follow tradition? Much like they're doing in our passage in Luke. Why is it that your disciples aren't fasting while we do? And Jesus' response to them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? And he hits to the heart of the problem, right? That's no longer the commandment of God. These are your man-made traditions. So, we need to be careful with that, right? He is going against their traditional thinking at the time and not going against the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. We see that in Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So God is fulfilling, or Jesus is fulfilling, um, the Old Testament. So that's the question that is posed to Jesus. Why is it that you aren't fasting? So then he answers the question through talking about a wedding. So verses 34 through 35. And Jesus said to them, Can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So, he answers the question here. Why is it that they aren't fasting? And he tells them, right now, the bridegroom is here. It's a wedding. And basically what he's saying is, I'm here, this is a time to celebrate. This is not a time to mourn. The long-awaited Messiah is here. I am he. Celebrate that. And this can be easily illustrated, right? If Jesus came back now, right, we're in the same position. We're waiting for him to come back. If he came back, would we take the time to say, well, let's all fast and mourn while Jesus is here, right? We wouldn't do that. We would celebrate Jesus the long he has finally come back, and that is the same position they were in, right? They were waiting for him, and he's finally here, and he's saying it's not a time to fast. Right now is a time to celebrate. The bridegroom has arrived, And he chose Jewish weddings um, because even in rabbinic law to the rabbis, they said marriage week was to be a week of unmixed festivity, during which you were released from various restrictions that you had. So Jesus chose this, right? Because even they would realize, oh, this is a time to celebrate. This isn't a time to fast and mourn and look gloomy. This is a time to celebrate what God is doing in this couple's life. And that's what he's telling them, right? This is a time for festivities. I am here. And we often see Jesus correlated as a bridegroom. And it's always a time to celebrate. But Jesus also noted that there would be a time to mourn. He saw and he could see that they would one day. And he points to it. And actually, here in Luke, this is the first time in Luke that he mentions his death. 
right? The bridegroom will be taken away from them. So the disciples did mourn. We can see that in Mark 16.10. Mary goes to them. This is during the resurrection. And she went, it says, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, right? So there was a time where they did mourn and weep. Jesus was telling them this is not the time they would be excited again at his return. So he knew there was a time to mourn. He was acknowledging that it was a time to celebrate right now while he was there. But he knew there was also a time to fast. And this is the other thing. We could walk away from this passage and say, oh, well, Jesus doesn't want us to fast either, right? That's obviously what he's saying. But that's not the case as well. We already read in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, right? Um, If you went back to those, you would notice in verse 16 and 17, he says, when you fast, implying that we are going to fast. When you fast, he's assuming that we will do it. So he's not condemning fasting. He's condemning their traditional ways. He also tells us how to fast in those, right? In verse 18, he says, Do it so that your fasting may not be seen by others. So don't be misled in thinking, Oh, he doesn't want us to fast. God does want us to fast. There's a time and a place for that. And he even tells us how to do that. And in the early, through the early Christians, we can see times where they did fast. If you turn to Acts 13... Acts 13.2, we read this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then again in verse 3 it says, "Then Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we see that they do fast. We can even go to verse um, chapter 14, verse 23. And again, and, they, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so again, all this is pointing to is why I make clear that he is not condemning fasting. He assumes that we will fast, but to do it in a worthy manner, so to speak. So, that is the question answered. And so then he gets to the question illustrated. Verses 36 through 39. Let's just read those. It says, He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and a piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, If he uh, does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. When we look at this parable... We can actually break it down into three, I'll say mini parables, three mini illustrations. Very small ones. You have the garments, the wine, and the old wine. 
See, Jesus, seeing Jesus as the bridegroom explains why the disciples weren't doing it at that very moment, because it was a time to celebrate. And the parables kind of go a little further to explain why they didn't really have to do it to begin with. Because again, the question is, why don't your disciples fast twice a week like we are? So the first parable, the first illustration within this parable, is the problem with patching in the gospel. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Just for a note of reference, right, you can think of clothing in Scripture is often correlated with character, we see that a lot. Colossians three eighteen through 17 is a big one. Verse 8, it says, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, and so on. That put them all away in the Greek has this idea of taking off clothing. And then later on in verse 12, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness and so forth. So it's the idea of taking off and putting on. But also we see it in Isaiah 61.10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, right? He has clothed me with a garment of salvation and covered me with the robe of of righteousness. Likewise, also wine is often um, correlated with joy and happiness in Scripture. So the problem is they will not match the new. Verse 36. The garments, right? The new will not match the old. Nothing about it would match. And this is pretty simple. Most of you probably have an old shirt that you have worn a lot, maybe while working, and then you have a new shirt, right? And even if they were the same color to start with, right, your old one is faded. If you tried to patch, take your new piece of cloth and put it on the old one, they wouldn't match, right? The old's faded, might be a different color, might be a different pattern. No matter what you do, those two cloths won't mix, and you won't be able to make them look the same. So there's a problem right there, right? The new won't match the old. That's what he's telling them. And this would have been even more common for them. They would have fully understood this at their time. But Matthew and Mark go into a little more explanation on why this is. A tear would be created. He says this too. But Matthew 9.16 says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made, right? So he's forthright with it. Look, you don't put unshrunk cloth on an old garment because it'll shrink and then you'll just get a worse tear. And people would have understood this. They would have known this. It would have made sense to them. And this, so when you think about the Pharisees, right? They were looking at Jesus and saying, well, how can we patch him into our traditionalism, into our ways? I think when we think of the Pharisees, we think they just hated everything about Jesus and everything Jesus taught. But there's probably things that they thought, oh, that's pretty good. We could put that into our religion as well. He can just go along with us. And so 
Jesus is pointing out to them, look, the new isn't going to match the old. You can't patch me into your traditional ways. Jesus tells them simply, they will tear and they will not match. See, Jesus was exclusive in his teaching. John 14, 6, right? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one will come to the Father except through me and only me. His teaching was different from them. The goals were even different. He preached the necessity of repentance, and they saw themselves as righteous. He proclaimed the need for humility, and they were proud of their exalted religious status. He looked at the heart. They looked at the external ceremonies, rituals, and traditions. They looked, uh, he offered approval of God. They loved the approval of man. See, Jesus couldn't be patched into their Judaism. He was going against what they were even teaching. And so that's the first one, the garments, right? And then he has the second illustration within this parable. The problem with mixing in the gospel. And this second illustration really just goes along with and reinforces the first one. He says, the old will burst, verse 37. Uh, Well, let's read it real quick. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. The wine, they would have fully understand this, the idea that this will burst, um, because they made these often. Wine skins were made from goat or sheep. Uh, the skin would be removed, tanned, and then the hair would be cut. The skin would be turned inside out, and then the neck would become essentially what would be the mouth of the bottle, and then the rest of it would be sewed up. What would happen is they put in the wine, it would ferment, And then gases would be released in there and it would expand the skin. And it would stretch out. And so basically what Jesus is saying, look, you can't put new wine into an old wine skin because it has already expanded. If it expands any more, then what will happen is it's just going to burst. Then you're not only going to ruin your skin, but you're also going to ruin the new wine. Both of them will be ruined. And this really hints to the idea also that the old um, Jewish religion would soon be replaced or we would say fulfilled through Jesus, right? In Hebrews 8.13 it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and who was becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is what Jesus is hinting to. He was coming to fulfill the law And they were trying to mix their ways with his ways. And he was saying it can't be done. There's no way to mix your traditionalism with what I am teaching. Is what Jesus was saying. He was saying just accept the new. Because both the skins and the wine will be destroyed, right? In verse 37 it says the new wine will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. We see this in Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here, Paul is explaining the same thing. Look, if you try to add anything to grace, 
any types of work, any of your traditional ways, it is no longer grace. You have something else on your hands. You can't add or take away from the gospel. You come away with a different gospel when you do. This is also in Galatians 5.4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from the grace, right? You can't be justified by the law. It is through grace alone. So the gospel does not go with anything else. So we come to the last little illustration here, the third one, and is the problem with drinking the old. He says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And this is actually kind of confusing when you first read it. You're like, well, why is it that they say that? Why is it that the old is good? The new is Jesus, the gospel. But this is really one of the saddest phrases, I think, in Scripture, because it happens a lot. The old is good. It's the tragedy of rejecting the gospel to cling to any other system of belief. And again, as believers, we might ask, how can this be? How can someone reject the gospel? We see it a lot, but we can't understand how they do it. Why reject the gospel for something else? Second Corinthians 4.4 4 gives us a little understanding in this. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right? They are blinded. They cannot see the gospel. The Pharisees liked their traditional ways. They were blinded by them. They liked their legalistic ways. They loved the old wine that they were acquainted with. And when you think about this, it's much like a coffee drinker. I like drinking coffee. It's the first thing that I want to do when I wake up is I want to go get my cup of coffee. And if someone were to say to me, hey, why don't you try this tea in the morning? That coffee looks gross, black, and is old, and this tea is much better for you. What do you think I would say? No, no. I'd say the old is good. I like my coffee. But in the same way, sadly, they say the same thing about Jesus. The old is good. It's what I'm used to, it's what I like, and it's what I love. And that's why they ultimately proclaimed, crucify him, right? Because they were in love with their old ways and couldn't accept the new. So the question becomes, for us today, is are we trying to mix anything into the gospel? We have to be careful not to. Do we have traditions that we hold on to? Of course we do. Personally, you probably do. The church does. Does. Every church does. I don't think I've ever been in a church that doesn't have some form of a tradition that they do. I'm not saying these traditions are bad. They're not. They actually can be good. They can point us to Scripture and help us follow them more. But they become bad when we elevate those traditions to the point where they are Scripture or even above Scripture. That is what the Pharisees had done. They had elevated their traditions to the point where it was mandated, and they would say it was mandated by God. So we can't confuse them with Scripture. We don't want Jesus to say to us, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? 
So again, don't go to me after and say, we need to stop all these traditions, Caden. Traditions are good. They can point us to God. But they are bad when we elevate them to the point where they're scripture. So don't mix anything with the gospel. No matter what it is. And people add or subtract from the gospel all the time. You might hear something like, God wants me to be happy, therefore he is going to give me a lot of money, right? That's going into the realm of prosperity gospel. That's false. God wants me to do good, therefore I must do good to be saved, right? You're adding to grace, adding in works. Once we add or subtract from the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. Our gospel should be exclusive. Francis Schaeffer said, Christians preach an an exclusive Christ in an inclusive age. Sadly, I don't think that is always the case today. There are many Christians proclaiming a different gospel today. So now, as we turn our hearts to communion, uh, leave all else aside, right? It is only Jesus Focus solely on the gospel. Uh, Make sure that you think about those things that you may have tried to mix in with the gospel or confused it with and take them out. Stay vigilant. Stay focused solely on Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, right? And so with that, let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Uh, that you did come down uh, in the form of a baby, and that you grew, and you lived through righteousness so that we can live through your righteousness, and that ultimately you died to save us from our sins, that we can turn from them and turn towards you. And I pray that now as we come to the communion table, that our hearts and minds would be solely focused on your life, your death, and your sacrifice, and that we have not added anything to or subtracted anything from your gospel, but believe solely in what you have taught us through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.